Hi everyone, welcome, so excited to be here, so excited you guys can make it out, we're so excited that we have the wonderful Danielle Bufunda here reading uh, to kick off our fall quarter uh, new writing series. We have these wonderful posters, hopefully you've seen these around. Um, we're so excited uh, about our uh, schedule this quarter. Uh, my name is Brandon Som. For those of you who don't know me, I'm a poet here and a professor here in the literature department, and I'm helping to organize the series. Um, I'm just going to introduce the series, and then I'm going to introduce the introducers. So I'm um, very excited about that. Um, I wanted to draw your attention again to the poster and to the series and to the fact that we have another event tomorrow, actually. So we're doubling up. We're excited this week. Um, it's the 50th anniversary of the immensely um, influential uh, anthology, Technicians of the Sacred. So 50-year anniversary. It is a celebration and a book launch for this new edition of the book. And it's edited by Jerome Rothenberg, who is a professor emeritus uh, here in the visual arts and, and literature department. So uh, that's going to be over in the library in Geisel uh, in the Seuss Room. Uh, tomorrow at 4.30. So make it out for that event. And then we have three other wonderful events scheduled uh, in November. Uh, we have Aisha Sabatini-Sloan, uh, and then we have Eileen Miles, another professor emeritus, so two emeriti this quarter, very excited. Uh, that Eileen Miles uh, reading is going to be also in that Seuss room, so want to underline and underscore that and um, look for it is, thank you, <laughs> Professor Doler. That's, I, I paid him for that, you know, a little, little audience participation. Uh, yes, so that's going to be November 9th, and it's actually on a Thursday, okay? So all, most of our readings are usually Wednesdays at 4.30. Uh, both uh, uh, Jerome Rothenberg's event and Eileen's are, are on a Thursday. And uh, Eileen's, uh, Eileen Miles' reading is uh, at 6.30. we got a bigger room. And uh, we're excited to be over in the library over there. So come out for that. And then we'll be closing this quarter's uh, series with Chiwan Choi coming down uh, from Los Angeles. And that's going to be November 15th at 4.30, okay? So there's these wonderful uh, posters. And there's also the website that you can uh, get details about our, all of our readings. And I want to definitely uh, uh, shout out and thank you to I, uh, Aiden LaRue and Evelyn Murdoch, uh, our two RAs working on the series, two graduate students working on the series, who uh, did these wonderful posters and, and distributed them around campus. So thanks so much to you guys. Um, let's see. What else do I have for you? I also want to thank Danica Chan and Derek Chin in the administrative offices. Uh, without their work, this series really couldn't happen. So big shout out to them. I also want to say, uh, let's take uh, a moment to turn off our, our uh, devices. Um, and I need to do that myself, too. And please do turn them off. You know, the, the buzzers are loud, too. So uh, ringer buzzer, just turn it all off. Thanks so much. And we're super excited to have introducing uh, Daniel Pafunda today, uh, three of our graduate students from our MFA program, Evelyn Murdoch, T.M. Lawson, and Shelby Driscoll-Salimi. So please put your hands together for them. Thanks so much.
Hello, I'm T.M. Lawson. I thought it would be very special to uh, read a selection from Danielle's most recent book of poetry, Dead Girls Speak in Unison. Can everyone hear me? All right. Just making sure you're alive. Do not pretend that you don't like it when we threaten you. We see you getting pheromone stink under the collar, moaning badly. When we creak your step, when we crack your glass, when we tap, 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 that is a bone. That is all we have. Though we are very shiny and filled with beetles, we are made entirely of bone, like an idol, like the tusk of some wonderful past. When you cleave to us, your skin will fuse hot calcium meth, and in the myth, you will be named for us. Daniel Pafunda, thank you, currently teaches undergraduate literature courses at UCSD. Formerly an assistant professor for the Department of English at the University of Wyoming, she now lives and works in the Mojave Desert, correct? Okay, good. <laughs> Wikipedia succeeds again. <laughs> they know, they know. <laughs> Her most recent book, The Dead Girls Speak in Unison, was published in 2014 by Coconut Books comes after Natural History Rape Museum, published in 2013 by Bluff Books. It has been noted by some that themes of the body, specifically woman's body, permeates her work, and I can't unsee this connection, this acuteness of control slipping from agency, the body receding into forced passivity, while the mind has to work to compensate like dead limb syndrome. This resonates with me personally. Her poems invoke taboos and like any writer worth their salt, challenge the reader to confront these taboos in the context, not just in the work, but against the backdrop of the reader's own culture, subculture, belief systems, and power dynamics within their own lives. Danielle's words are body, outreaching, touching us with succinct, measured violence. Not far, not for the joy of causing a ripple, but for the hope of making a splash, perhaps on the way to breaking a dam eventually. Hi, I'm Evelyn Murdoch. Um, one of the most intriguing devices used in Papunda's Natural History Rape Museum is the box. Present only in the first and fourth sections of the book, the box has an invasive quality that sets an uneasy tone for the work. Its inconsistent presence throughout the work invokes a monster of sorts lurking in the shadows. This effect, coupled with Pafunda's penchant for grotesque and visceral imagery, as well as her experimental work with sound, calls back to modernist works, such as Gertrude Stein's Tinder Buttons, as well as gothic literary movements. Thank you, Evelyn. We... <laughs> much love. Um, in our MFA class, we read Danielle Profunda's book, Natural History Rape Museum. So I also have my 
um, thoughts about the book, but I hope that you'll all pick it up if you haven't and, um, or one of the books and have your own thoughts. Um, Danielle Pafunda in her book, Natural History Rape Museum, perverts species names and those things which are precious or private. She exposes the hideous and coveted, which it is not polite to talk about, and so it's very important to talk about, to the light and delight of her poetry. One of her specimens, the pearl, becomes precious gut-fed tumor moon. And um, there's more delicious language than that. (laughs) Um, Pofunda's textual perversions, her use of smutty lexicon pairings with objects of desire, question what is natural. Her words redeem those objects of natural history's colonialist collection practices preserved in, quote, privileged tents. Taxidermy victims become undead and turn the reader inside out. Songs my my grandmother sang me unravel. For example, goatsy dotes and dozy dotes and little lambsy divy become becomes little lambs inside me. Walking down the halls of Pofunda's uh, creative collection seems more honest than a trip to the Smithsonian. So, with all of our thoughts, please welcome Danielle Pofunda. Everyone's good? Okay. Um, Thank you. That's one of the loveliest introductions I've ever received, and I um, think that you should all read my poems for me from now on. Um, That was really very beautifully done. Um, Can everyone hear me well enough? Okay. I can project a little more. Is that good? Okay. So we can skip the um, attachment mic. Okay. Um, I want to say thank you so much to Brandon, to the literature department for having me here, um, Lily for putting me up <laughs> and getting me here on time, and to all of you coming out during what is probably a, a very busy week. Um, thank you to the introducers um, and everybody who got the tech and everything going for us, too. Um, so I wasn't planning to read from Natural History Rape Museum, but it is um still timely, unfortunately. Um, And so I'll probably do that, um, maybe just one or two poems from that. Um, When I first finished this book, it took a while for it to go from the finished manuscript to press. Um, And my publisher, a really wonderful feminist poet herself, Shanna Compton, and I would sort of darkly joke, well, at least rape is still trending. Um, And, you know, and it get pushed back another year. And here we'd be five years later. Oh, look, it's still trending. Um, so over this past hashtag Me Too weekend, um, which I know a lot of us are probably feeling a lot of heightened emotion in the wake of, um, right? It felt like, in fact, yes, it's still trending. Um, so I will give you um, the content warning is basically for the title, really. Um, so you've already gotten that bit. Um, but I will read one or two poems um, from this piece. Um, in the book, they have the titles appear in these sort of boxes. I think that's as close to visual arts as I get, and that's my sort of museum styling there. So, I hated myself in your womb from conception. When they called me vagina, when they called themselves screwed, when they made the father hold ice in his craw till he yanked, when they gave the mother a sleek tail and filled her, 
with beetle blood. When they scammed the knobs, when they swaddled me slaughter, dander, and limp, when they told me to do what you done and better it, not to take the shine off, keep quiet in there, cotton stuff my viable slag hole, to poison. All my long life, they every day loved me by sticking their fingers into my pudge. Um, so this character appears, or this figure appears throughout the book. I think he's in here somewhere. Um, and his name is the Fuckwad, um, and he is—he's the Fuckwad. Um, I was looking uh, for a word that would sort of speak to history and those iconic makers of history who are coming from the most normate positions, um, but I didn't want it to be a word we associated with power. I wanted to move away from those kind of phallic insults that are um, a little bit of a compliment, right? Um, and so I was looking also for one that wasn't going to be gendered feminine or biologically sexed female, um, and eventually fuckwad really worked the best for that. Um, it's also so pleasing to say. Um, <laughs> it's very pleasing to say. Okay. Um, so this is um, also, I wrote this uh, in the wake of um, a very traumatic rape and beating and subsequent death that um, a dear friend of mine with whom I'd grown up suffered. Um, so it was also my way of sort of working through that violence in a way that didn't just have to be triumphant or gently memorializing. Um, so uh, this works as a sort of homage that I wouldn't tell most people was an homage, but trust me, she would appreciate it. So... <laughs> called you put me in this dress i'm just wearing it externally come on over here and press me then coochie coo my waddle dove curdle and spit it palm we have come here to assemble our herniated memoir fat needles huffer glue soap scum fingernail scraping through the bandage why'd we carry heavy if it was gonna punch out our rosy patoot. Why'd we live at home all those years? We have come here to discuss the rape, death, bad mood of my friend, sister, twin sister, that dead girl. We have come here to look at a series of photographs made thin by dint of sick glug from the split sass spout. We have come here to sign a document certifying our level of pie hole. We, the dress and me, got hung up round your roping peg. If you don't like to look at bare sockets, flip up my skirt. And then that goes on for a while. <laughs> um, move over to the Dead Girls. Um, so the Dead Girls um, originally came out with Coconut, and when that press went its way, is now on um, Bluef Books. Um, in a slightly edited version, um, more or less the same book, though. Um. This book came um, through um, kind of paired obsessions, right? Um, obsessions with sort of um, 
the death of femmes and non-binary people and women um, and how those are covered in the media. Um, also, at whose hands are we most likely to suffer violence? Um, and then um, a really corny obsession with Spoon River Anthology. Has anyone ever read that play? Edgar Lee Masters, and it takes place in a graveyard, and like everyone from the small town graveyard stands up and says their little piece on life in the town. Um, it's, um, you know, it, it's a great play. I love it in many ways. It's also got all sorts of problems. It's problematic in so very many ways. Um, but I'm obsessed with it. I was in it when I was um, a wee high school actor. Um, and it just kind of, even though I wasn't a great actor, stuck with me for life. So it's always in there. And I'm kind of always writing that story. Um, but as I was obsessed with it, I kept thinking, you know, like when they costumed it, us for it like we were in our nice clothes that we would have been buried in and we were you know given a sort of like ghostly sheen with the makeup or whatever it is and I didn't want that kind of chorus I wanted actual corpses to stand up and say their bit um, so I spent a few years gathering myself a really unseemly chorus um, so they often speak together as a chorus um, and I'll just read a few of these on the front page, life has smeared. We get no news of home down here. No before, no news of storms, no new noise, no newsy skin on the surface of things. We get nothing but the center of each O, eaten by a worm, relinquished by a worm, traveling the country by way of worm, our sorry conduit, our sleaze and scrap nostalgia. The chorus. We'll tell you what a corpse is. It's a girl with her shoes on backward. It's a double-jointed girl. It's a glass eye in a glass jar in the jaw of an alligator girl. It's a doll whose eyes move of their own accord when you turn just so. It's a hollowed loop pearl through which the worm can thread her lonely troubles, her lover done gone. Um, there are a few chants. These are very good for protesting. Um, so this one, it's a little hard to do this one by yourself, but I'll give it a go. This one's called Chant. One of us said, muffled. One of us said, gagging. One of us said, she'd pull off your face and mail it to fucktown. Oh, you guys did the laughing part. Thank you. <laughs> um, another chant. We can't bear your chatter any longer. When you say no, we say now. When you say sorry, we say sack. Hey, hey, ho, ho. This borrows a line from Joni Mitchell. Supine, we roll our eyes back like the dolls, and the night is a starry dome, the tarry, night-like inner crust of earth, and the stars, each one, a salty maggot. A murder of ghosts appears on the hemlock. It's extra deathy. But don't be stupid, human cylinder. 
There is no near to death. There is only yes or not yet. Um, I'll tell a little story that I think is maybe helpful for people who are just putting work out there in the world. Um, I had a, a friend at a press um, who knew I was working on this book write and asked to see it. And I said, are you sure your press wants to see it? And she said, oh, yeah, we're sure. We really want to see it. And so I sent it to them. Um, and my friend wrote me back a few weeks later. And she was a little embarrassed, I could tell. Um, and she was a little worried. And she said, well, look, that poem that I just read, she was like, that poem is very nice. We think that poem is very nice. It's pretty elegant, even with the maggot. And if you could just make the other poems like that, then we would want to publish it. Um, and I understood what she was trying to say, and she was in a very awkward position. And um, it was a nice moment for me um, just to be able to say, right, if I did make a book full of um, more elegant maggots than that which I have made, um, perhaps these presses would be interested in it. Um, but it was a good moment for me to say, well, actually, I want most of my maggots in here to be pretty messy. Um, I don't want them to be all that elegant. Not each of them will sing Joni Mitchell to you. So... Um, you know, that's um, kind of a hard thing, even when you've been doing this for a while. It's sometimes hard to go back to your work and say, oh, well, someone said if I just changed you in this fashion, it would be okay. You'd be palatable. Um, sometimes we're getting really good advice. Other times we know in our hearts it's not the advice to follow. Um, so that's just to remind us all to, like, risk it for our yuckier maggots. <laughs> That's what they'll say when I'm long gone, she said, to risk it for your yuckier maggots. <laughs> okay. Let's see. Maybe just one more from this book. I usually end with the one that's already been read, so I don't have to read that one. So I will read something else. Maybe I'll read something messier. No, you read it so beautifully. <laughs> I would like to end from now on with you reading it. Uh, I'll, I'll end with this one. Um, I have two small children, and again, I wouldn't always tell people this is an homage, um, but this is a bit about um, love poem for one's babies, um, and I think I wrote this one for, for my boy, my second child. Um, it goes off the rails after a while, but, you know, the sentiment's still there. Let us be clear about the devil, baby. <laughs> We loved him. He was our only love. We were only happy one time with him. Trailing blood, ectoplasm, desperate for food. Half blind, shrieking, his glassy nails sunk deep in our dugs. We loved his stiggy mollick breath, the prehistoric way he gutted a fish. We ran tablets of sulfur over his skin to quell the blisters. We weren't cowering. If you beat your wife, if your wife looks upon an image of goats, if your wife rolls in the arms of another wife, if your wife is vain, if she has a tail of her own, if she has a sister with horns, if her father rent her out, if her uncles clutter her basin, if she hold a doll aloft alive and wear her hair in three braids and sing with slickened tongue. And when he was born and you first split his skull in his mother's arm 
and then his mother's skull on the eider down, and then the bed down its cursed middle. And when you wept and began again with a pale little rabid just sprung from school. So like half love poem. Um, yeah, and then they end with that kind of threat. They kind of threaten throughout. Um, so I, I love this chorus, and they kind of always stay with me. Um, I'm going to read a little bit from a new project. Uh, the book is forthcoming from Ricochet Editions sometime next year. Um, and this is a little different. This is more in prose. Um, I started my career as a poet, and I often identify as a poet. Um, that's kind of the genre that's always been dearest to my heart. Um, but I think as a writer, um, I work often from a more speculative space. I'm always working from a space of trying to tell um, a, a fairly impossible story. I'm trying to make an impossible story possible. And sometimes that means I'm trying to make the emotional terrain of something articulable. Um, we go to the lyric to articulate that stuff that is inarticulable, right? That's why we go there for love poems or eulogies or things like that. So that was a very natural place for me to end up. But other projects demand other forms. So, um, you know, I do often find myself working in nonfiction or fiction or hybrid critical essays or things like that, um, depending on what the particular project demands. Um, so over the years, I came to speak about genre um, less as identity and more as strategy, right? Um, here's what the project calls for. Um, I like to talk about it that way in workshop. I like to talk about it that way in my own head, um, particularly if you find yourself um, needing to get out of your own head a little bit about it, right? If you've been working in one particular genre, it can become very intimidating to make that shift, right? Um, you know, if I've been writing a lot of poetry, my brain's going to tell me, you are not a novelist. Mm -hmm. Do not go over there and try to write a novel. I see what you're trying to do. This is embarrassing for all of us, right? <laughs> um, so I've been trying to think more about, right, what is the work that I'm trying to get out there, right? What is the experience that I am trying to create, like an architecture for people to walk inside? Um, and that's loosened it up a lot for me. And we all know that experience as readers, right? You read something and it's just super magical and it blows the doors off the rules and suddenly you remember, oh, right, I can do anything on the page. Um, and so channeling that, you know, what seems like magic sometimes, right? Channeling that um, into our very day-to-day uh, -day quotidian writing practice can be really difficult. Um, so for me, one of the things I do is I usually find a form, and the form tells me what the manuscript needs to do. Um, so this book that's coming out soon, it'll be my first prose book that's been published. Um, and um, kind of came to me, um, I was writing sort of these letters or what we call epistles. Um, and that can be done in prose or in poetry. And I love those old-fashioned epistolary novels, right? Something you read from like the 17 or 1800s where the whole story is told in, you know, very florid letters between people. Um, and so I had 
stories I wanted to tell, and I really just wanted to write the letters down. It's just all I really wanted to do. Um, and so I gave myself permission to just write the parts I wanted to. Um, and this book is called The Book of Scab. It's a memoir, but I would caution that it's an experimental memoir, or maybe I would relieve you by saying it's an experimental memoir. Um, so um, a lot of things happen in here. Um, you know, it was first published as a chapbook with Essay Press that publishes creative nonfiction. My friend there was like, definitely, definitely nonfiction, right? We don't want to fact check it. We believe you're doing this particular thing with nonfiction. And so I feel like it um, is nonfiction that way, but sometimes things happen in it that couldn't happen in the physics of our real world, and that's okay. Sometimes that's how you have to tell the story. So um, I will end by reading just a few of these. Um, and this is the book of Scab. Scab is from the late 20th century. Um, she's growing up with chronic pain. She's white. She's got parents. That's mostly what you need to know about her to start. <laughs> Dear Mom and Dad, I won't be home tonight. At the concert, we ate a bag of soap powder that we bought for 25 ripped-up sweaty dollars and swallowed something a girl said was Tylenol and Eurydice. <laughs> There's a boy here who's been calling me sister. He wants to know where Lovey is. He wants me to follow him through the park to leave some money in the base of a tree Lovey often pisses on, to hold my hand and sit on the edge of the fountain until Lovey comes back from the grave. He says that Lovey is a beautiful man with 12 apostles and wants us all to wash our feet before we come to the table. He says that Lovey takes his pants off and has babies all over the bathroom floor. He says that Lovey always knew I was a bitch, cunt, whore, slut, but he still wanted to feed me. He says that Lovey has a generous nature and will give us all plenty of time to please him before he sends us out to hustle for rent. He wishes I could have known Lovey when he was alive. He says Lovey is coming back after the third set. He says Lovey comes on the wings of a guitar solo with a leather broom handle in his teeth riding a horse's skeleton. I sit with that boy as long as I can and then dying of boredom, tell him to wait there for me, there. <laughs> that I'll be back. That I'll find Lovey and come back for him. That of course I know what Lovey looks like. He's only described Lovey to me down to the tiniest detail of Lovey's spent cock whimpering on Lovey's generous thigh, wiry hairs on guard, Lovey's favorite brand of cigarettes spilled out of the pack in a halo around Lovey's bruised face. Lovey's chest heaving, Lovey's ingrown toenail throbbing in Lovey's hoof. Propped on the arm of the sagging couch, its frames split, Lovey's beer spilled. Blending into the stained fabric, a pair of pliers dropped to the carpet, a roach slipped out, extinguishing itself in the dank shag, and Lovey's colossal hand flung out in benediction. I can see that boy from here. He's bent over, holding a digital watch and counting on his fingers a contorted set of numbers. One of the speakers fell off the stage during the first act and crushed a girl's skull, and one of the singers stuck his tongue on the microphone, which stopped his heart, but he was brought back to life by another band singer. And then they sang a classic rock love ballad duet, duet which they dedicated to not being dead. <laughs>
The band on stage now is performing shirtless in blood-soaked pants with knives at their throats. They're playing their hit song about how much they hate each other's lovers. <laughs> Except for the drummer, who's a 400-year-old monk and never touches flesh. It's getting darker. Our blanket is damp with smuggled vodka and piss. We know for a fact when they turn off the stadium lights, you can fuck in the trees and sleep in the ravine. There's a party outside the north entrance, down deep in that crevice, so deep the lights from the parking lot wash over like a visitation. My boyfriend's best friend is there and waiting for us to show up so that he can pin me against one of the tree trunks and tell me again how much he loves me. He keeps telling me he can't live without me, even though the sight of me shoving my tongue into my boyfriend's mouth makes him want to gouge his eyes out. He keeps telling me to take off my clothes more quietly, that he can hear me taking off my clothes and it's killing him. He tells me the elastic makes him die, the buttons rubbing on cotton are needles under his fingernails wishing for morning. He tells me when I squat to pee in the woods, he hears heaven shouting his name. He thinks he could fit both my breasts in his mouth. He thinks he could suck the grief out. He hands me a letter that he wrote on the dirty crotch of my underwear and permanent marker, and it says I need to shut the fuck up right now, because every time I speak, he hears me with someone else. He says I have the voice of someone who fucks every day. He says I have the face of someone you can't imagine fucking. He says I have the face of a dead girl from another century, and someday I'll get a disease. In the letter... He says I'd better plug up my eyes, because when I look at him, he sees how possible it is for me to love him, and knows I'm just not trying. He wants to know what's wrong with me. He reads the whole letter aloud, and then he puts his mouth right next to my ear and says, Tell me, your ugly little scab. Here I am, dear mom and dad, sweeping up from the latest suicide party. Spilled pills, jackknife shotguns, photos smashed from their frames. At your wedding, the priest bit the rabbi and the rabbi was sore. And everyone rabid on that foaming bowl of punch. Then I was born, bruised and fat from the squalid pigeonhole mom calls a body. And she turned me into the cops three days old, for homicide attempts. Here you are now, trying to take it all back. No wonder I'm so incredibly boring. No wonder I'm such a nonstop whiner. I say everything twice. I have only myself for reference. Only, I eat the entire baggie of mushrooms, and when my soon-to-be-dead friend ditches me for a better party, I hop on the back of the nearest gorilla. I hop on his alien back, his otherworldly horseback, his loping back, copper stunk and studded with bones. I ride him smoothly into a glade and read an article about the occult practices of high-stakes day traders while the boy goes down. 
in the Glade. It's like every movie I've ever seen, lush like a stupid planet full of languageless bear children about to be obliterated by an even lusher, sadder orb. I have a stable feeling. I have the feeling that everything I do is sound and I'll be a-okay. And then the feeling starts to fade and I can't do anything about it. Do you know how stark that is? I can't do a thing to feel. Then my body trundles along, a little scab, hobble off, take a pee. Not every piece has so much peeing in it, but <laughs> when you write a memoir, there's so much peeing. <laughs> I'll just read a couple more of these. Dear Mom and Dad, this isn't really me. This is the atrocity I've always dreamed of. This is the kill-kill I get to cram in the creek's bloody molar. This is the fuck-stop. This is the piece of muscle scavenged from the wreckscape. In the hand, the handle sits heavy and meaningful with the knowledge of where one rib is sewn to another, with the know-how of an upward thrust, with the complete conviction that this gesture can end it. This is not me, but the image tick that wakes me. The ick kit that stutters through a tightly woven fabric of protists, bacteria, potential. In the future, when she, it, me, walks along the ridge of a mountain that hoards out its fossils and frowns on us grievously, she'll never admit to having known this, it, me. In the future, even bearing my own broken fingers, even marking the earth with the same carbon burn, she will say, who now? This is ahistorical. This is perverse presentism. This is the normate fucking her way into a dilettante's pose. I don't want to know to know you, do I? This is the longing I had with my head gone squeamish between the speakers and a mouthful of shag rug, where I ruined my skin with crying. This is where I ruined my skin with scalding. This is where I drank a bottle of witch hazel and promptly puked it back up. This is where I ate raw nutmeg and saw the future. In the future, I was a talking wolf, and I told the boys to get a head start. I ran through town, capeless, full of pearls, shedding. In the park, I climbed the gazebo, and on its pitching roof, I pitched. I'm doing the best I can to be. Your ugly little scab. Um, I love the scarlet letter. Does anyone else love the scarlet letter? So wonderful. I particularly love Pearl. Um, I really think she's the hero um, and the future and um, that we should just let all the children run free and become Pearl. Um, so this is kind of my Pearl and her mama poem or story, um, which is part of my memoir. I think that's totally fair that the books we read are our memoirs. Hey, I have a sard red tatter with a precious letter stitched on it. The letter A. The letter F. What? You're dead and I'm alone on a brand new continent. You're dead, but you come back to life as my husband. 
He's missing. He's at sea, or he's banging natives until he infects them all with his Dutch hazards. When I get out of prison, I go live at the edge of town because I know how much it costs to live in town. <laughs> the ravine is full of rusted husks, vins redacted, distended drive shafts, nude and reeling. The ravine is full of diggers. The roads are full of men looking to make hay. Hey, fellas, with your 150,000 gallons of chemicals, can you find me the road from here? Oil's running down my legs. My little girl pegs you in the head with a rock or a hunk of cinder. You can't run your car in sunshine, sunshine, she sings. And I wish to hell I were my little girl instead of me, but this is just a story. This style is dead. Pin it to my chest. This dead letter office, a confession. Oh, wow. Keep it in the customs house. And then I'll close with this last one. Um, so, you know, like most of the stories I tell, I think I am sort of endlessly trying to tell my own story, um, which I'm okay with. I think a lot of writers do that. Um, and, um, you know, I think if you're interested in the content, you can make the work interesting to others. Um, I am also probably at the same time always sort of struggling with my own aesthetics on the page. Um, and I had made this book, um, I'm not sure I wrote this poem very, or this story very last, um, this section, this particular letter maybe happened like halfway through the writing. So um, when I got here, I was at this place where I realized I was feeling pretty good about kind of all the ugliness I was making, um, but that I also do still struggle with making beautiful things, um, with making those kind of works that can capture not just um, not just the vexed relationships I have with other humans, but the beautiful ones, too, and how tricky that work is. So I'll end here. Dear Mom and Dad, I wanted to make something clean. Don't you know? I wanted to make something that was not porous no matter how closely you looked. And not you, but your machine, lens exponential in its uncompromising pronouncement. Something without fleck or pore, without texture. I wanted to make a surface that exceeded all classical efforts in its commitment to beauty. I did then, like everyone. And everyone who waved a clean hand in this room, sitting at leisure with heads hung up by the song, with legs draped, an emphasis on leisurely, with an ear to the wind stung mulberry whisper of some super attenuated god vice, everyone lying. And I, with my ragged teeth, was lying through them too. Did I lose my taste for beauty? Or did I just cross into the room where its mask was worn? I don't have to describe to you the closeness of breath on latex, the concave interior, the skin side of the cast, the wire in the dummy's noodle. Locked in the basement after everyone's gone for the day, when the pump starts churning, do I risk my pristine, fine gauge thread? Do I come up nude from the inside out? Whatever I did, Mom and Dad, I did in the loveless swan's gut of twilight. I did it on a lake with an oar through my heart-like organ. 
I did it skirts torn in the back field past sunset. I sat bare-bottomed on an ant hill and begged for my life, for which the ants had no taste and I had no money. Like everyone, I eventually pulled my hair tight up under a crown of lilies and proclaimed myself the good bride of keeping doors ajar. Between this realm of mouth speech and that other of mind's pitching, I stood with my slippers pointing cold and beloved, one hand yawning into the cool clasp of the other. In the future, when my brute loyalty is safely torn out and pitched from the window, moving fast, no plates, an unhinged notice will take its place. I'll never again mistake the painter's eye for my own when reflected blue and smug and full of anguish. Your ugly little scab. Thank you. I'll answer one of them. I've been wondering which concert <laughs> I was talking about. I think it was Horde Tour. I think that's that first piece. Um, does anyone remember what Horde Tour was? Okay, good. Most of you were too little to be exposed to Horde Tour, right? I had like like Neil Young, but then also like who else would have played like? I think like the good one had Sonic Youth. Um, the bad one had. That band that's not Aerosmith and not as good as Aerosmith. Who I'm like. <laughs> yeah, it would have like it would have Neil Young, it would have, you know, in a good year Sonic Youth, and then it would have a lot of like not so great bands that you'd have to sit through all of them to kind of get to that. Um and it was sort of pitched as the harder version of WOMAD, which was World of Music and Dance, which was Peter Gabriel and Sinead O'Connor and people like this. And that was like a little like hippier and gentler, and then Horde Tour was like um you know, was uh, like harder than Lollapalooza, not as good, um, and like very much more macho than Lilith Fair. Um, anyway, it was a bad place to go. <laughs> Other questions? Not about the history of rock in upstate New York. Yeah. I'm attempting to articulate this, but um, in your book, Natural History Rape Museum, I noticed that there were a lot of S sounds, including S word selections, and I was yeah. trying to figure it out. I was going to include it in my introduction, but I'm still trying to pinpoint uh, what the intention was behind it. That was actually something you meant to do. Um, yeah, I mean, I think like most people, um, things happen that I'm not intending to do. Um, but right, you start making a noise and then you get sort of addicted to it and it just sort of keeps showing up. Um, but at some point, um, I tend to, as I'm writing, um, I tend to bruise something a long time and then write it out. And I don't do a ton of revision, but my method is to read aloud to myself all of the work. So at some point I started here. 
sharing it. Um, and that became clear to me, too. Um, and I think it had a lot to do. Uh, I was in a Ph.D. school for much of the time I was writing this, and I was doing my comprehensive exams. And I had been reading a lot of theory books on the body and power. Um, and then um, a lot of books about um, sort of the performance of gender in drama and literature from kind of classical period until present moment. Um, so I was thinking of a couple of things. I was thinking of in early modern work how um, particularly obsessed playwrights got with the leakiness of the body um, and that all bodies are very leaky at that moment. So it's not just, right, it's not just female bodies are leaky, but like human bodies are leaky. Um, and this comes up in, in, you know, Jacobian plays and things like that. And so the kind of slippage that happens in the human body in early modern through Renaissance times was really fascinating to me. Um, and then at the same time, um, I was reading, I think, I think quite a bit of French theory too. Um, so these places where the language would get soft or slippery in ways that don't translate well into English. Um, I was reading a lot about uh, Marie Antoinette too, and I was getting really, um, it was around the time the Sofia Coppola Marie Antoinette would have come out a little, maybe a little before that, um, but I have continued to obsess about it. I was getting pretty head up about it. Um, about sort of the use of women's bodies as property across space and time. And so um, all of those S's started to just become like the fuckwads hissing, just like his deflating over time and leaking everywhere. And this idea that right, everyone's always protecting themselves against um, female and feminine leakage, right? But in fact, we're like getting leaked on by the patriarchy all the time. <laughs> so I think as things kind of got um, both, I wanted things to challenge notions of hard things are good and soft things are bad, soft things are women, hard things are men, right? All these terrible binaries. And so I just kind of was playing with the mess of that language. Um, so I was slipping back and forth between those softer sounds and the harder Anglo-Saxon ones. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Yes? So what if I <laughs> Gosh, there's so much good advice to give to people when they're starting to learn about writing. Um, and one of those pieces of advice, I think, is right. you're going to get a lot of advice. right? So you want to try to figure out how to determine what advice really works for you. Um, when I was an undergraduate, I had a really great novelist professor who would say to us, if you are not writing five hours a day, you are not a writer. <laughs> and she would say, you know, and a lot of us in the room, I went to one of those colleges that was like 70% women, 30% men. So most of us in the room, right, were um, coming in, showing up as like pretty cisgender women. And, you know, she would say like, how many of you are planning to, you know, like get married and have babies? And it was a significant number of people in the room. Um, and she would be like, well, you can't do Christmas. You can't do Christmas cookies. You can't get caught up in that because then you stop writing. <laughs> um, she was not wrong about any of these things, right? Like, she was not wrong that, 
right? When you start giving little pieces of your life here and there, if you don't have some sort of system in place for yourself, right, that it's going to dissolve. Um, but that was pretty rigid and pretty, um, pretty hyperbolic. And it sort of helped me to get that advice because we would laugh. We loved her, but we would laugh at it a little bit. We'd be like, yeah, right. Like I have two jobs. I'm taking four classes. I'm working on my senior project. I'm also going to spend five hours a day on my novel. Probably not. Um, <laughs> so I knew that it was like good advice that I had to reinterpret for myself. Um, and I never became one of those writers who blocks out time every single day. I don't work well that way, um, and it's also not possible within the constraints of my life. But I did find a way to adapt that to me. Um, so I think the advice I often give is right to experiment with all the advice you give. You got, you know, check it out, see what works for you. Um, but that, you know, nobody really ever got to be the writer they wanted to be by following someone else's template for it. Um, so, you know, I always appreciate reading people's advice. I always appreciate reading people's descriptions of their own practice. I sometimes get a great pointer or something I really react badly to, like, oh, guess what I'll never do with my writing? Like, I will never try that one. Um, you know, but to sort of be testing it for yourself all the time, um, I think is most necessary. And um, also to move towards stuff that makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, I think I started, when I was doing editorial work, I started figuring out what I really wanted to publish when I was working on literary journals by looking at work and feeling like sort of embarrassed for the person at first. I would look at something and I would think, oh my God, why do you think you can say that on the page? Or, you know, I would have this very junior high feeling where I'd feel like, oh, you're so uncool, don't stand next to me. And then I would know that that was like my own reaction to something I just wasn't getting. And so I'd sort of push myself through that discomfort and I'd say, okay, go back into that piece and figure out what made you feel ooky, right? And, you know, on occasion it was just badly written and I didn't like it, but probably like at least half the time it just turned out to be something really exciting that I had never seen before and didn't know how to process. And so pushing myself through discomfort helps me push through discomfort in my own writing and made me a much better editor, I hope. Yeah. Brandon. Um, thank you for your reading, it's really fantastic. Um, I, wanted to, um, and I wanted to say too that we're so excited that you'll be teaching here I'm so excited. Um, teaching classes in the winter, and as a way of kind of plugging those classes, right? Because I believe you're, yeah. you're, you're teaching a, is it a size five class. Yes, so um, I'm teaching two classes in the winter, um, and they're both going to be so much fun. Um, one of them is the Eurealism class that's going to deal with sci-fi, fantasy, speculative literature. Um, we're going to read a lot of really cool stuff. Um, we're going to check out some Afrofuturism. We're probably going to talk about The Handmaid's Tale. We're going to look at the best new American sci-fi and fantasy writing, which is such a good addition um, that just came out. It's really exciting to see who's in it this year. Um, and it's a, it's a pretty sound representation to this year, which I really like. You've got a really diverse array of authors in there. Um, and then the other class is experimental writing. Um, and so we're going to look at experiments across genre. Um, we'll probably conceive of genre again very much as strategy, look at experiments in many different forms. Um, we will also read Lily Wong's book, Bestiary in that class and you will maybe come speak to us um, 
Right. Um, speaking of memoirs that do some experimental things, so um, we'll be talking about how to sort of blur the lines of genre, how we're probably most of us already doing hybrid work in many ways. Um, and in that class, we'll also look at the Afrofuturism anthology because it's just really stellar and out of this world. Um, yeah. Questions about those? Be a good amount of reading and a great amount of writing. And uh, safe space to take a lot of chances. Yes. What are you personally reading right now? Uh, I just read, um, speaking of Afrofuturism, I just read this book um, that my 12-year-old read before me. Um, She had just found it at the used bookstore. It's Mallow Hopkinson, and it's uh, called Brown Girl in the Ring. Has anyone read this book? So... Okay, yeah, same author as Midnight Robber. Um, And this one is set in a slightly futuristic Toronto after kind of an economic collapse um, and brings in a lot of um, sort of um, traditional myth and legend and magic making and storytelling with this kind of post-apocalyptic future. Um, It's absolutely beautifully written. It's really intense. I was very surprised my 12-year-old had, like, she read it, and she was like, oh, this is really cool. You should check this out. And I read it, and I was like, whoa, you gave me no warning whatsoever. (laughs) Um, But it's it's a gorgeous work, and it also works with dialect a lot, too. So it's got several different layers of dialect going on. It's got some interesting code-switching stuff that happens. Um, it's not a terribly hefty novel, so you can read it pretty quickly. So I read that and adored it. Um, I thought it was just absolutely brilliant. Um, Samantha Irby, the essayist, who uh, wrote We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. Um, she's hilarious, um, and I've been reading We Are Never Meeting in Real Life. Um, she's interesting um, as somebody who's a writer who didn't go to college or started college and didn't finish and worked, you know, Um, an hourly wage job for many years um, and writes these extraordinarily funny, brilliant, very relatable essays. Um, You know, they're they're beautiful and um, she is just, she'll really crack you up too, so I've been enjoying those. Um, Lincoln and the Bardo, has anyone read this George Saunders? Yeah, it's kind of blowing my mind. I've actually been listening to that one on audiobook and they got 166 different people to put the audiobook together. (laughs) because it has all those quotes in it. Um, And I'm fascinated with it as somebody who likes the blurry line between fiction and nonfiction. So these places where there are these quotes that are coming from historical sources where we're talking about what life was like for the Lincolns in the White House. And then we've got these really irreverent cast of ghosts saying all sorts of extraordinarily unbelievable things. and it's, it's a kind of perfect Halloween book in some ways, too. But it's also really heartbreaking, uh, so I have to listen to it in small pieces so that I don't get too overwhelmed with sadness. Um, yeah. Um, then poetry-wise, um, gosh, we're just having a really good year as poets. Um, so much good stuff is coming out. Lynn Melnick's Landscape with Sex and Violence is just out from Yes, Yes Books. Um, and that tackles rape culture pretty head on. It's beautifully written and um, is about California as well. So you've got the beautiful California landscape and California cities mixed in with this kind of um, really fascinating confrontation of rape culture and how we speak back to it. And that's been a real privilege to work with.
Thank you all so much for coming out, for listening. This was so helpful. Yeah, me too. So, uh, I'm kind of freak out if my. <laughs>